I, I really do feel like if I had to cut away everything and they said you get one skill to, to develop and work on, it would be speed. Welcome back to the next episode of Process Preparation and Performance. Coach Duke, J.R. Simmons, we're here with Coach Kula of Kula Sports Performance. We are super hyped to have him, J.R. This is amazing. We'll tell you how it came about. Coach Tony Holler, at the end of his podcast, said, hey, you know who you need to talk to? You need to talk to Coach Kula, and I'm going to tell you why. And he went into like this dissertation of why we would be incredibly wrong and dumb if we don't make this phone call right here he is we i text him one night and i'm like jr is this guy this guy doesn't know me what the heck is gonna happen here quickly i mean like a snap of a finger it comes back he's like oh that sounds great let's let's connect and talk about it this quarantine thing has been really really good to us jr extremely good to us i know your car got damaged in the hail i know you had a bunch of problems but we got like a legendary track coach here who trains NFL and elite level athletes. I can't believe it. I, I just can't believe it. Coach, how you doing? Great. How are you guys? Great. Doing pretty good. We usually give an update about JR's cars, just so you know, because they got damaged in hail and they're getting fixed. Coach, do you guys, I know you're out in Colorado. How much bad weather do you guys got going on out there right now? You know, right now the spring's a little unpredictable always in Colorado. We, we go from 75 degrees to uh, six inches of snow overnight. Um, we've had a couple of those here in the last month. Um, we've had pretty, pretty good weather uh, by and large, but uh, we've had a couple snowstorms. I'm in an area where we're uh, a little above 6,000 feet, so we'll get, we'll get 12, 14 inches uh, occasionally. But in Colorado, it's gone in a couple days, so different than some of those. Midwest states, we're, we're pretty fortunate that way. Coach, I was reading your bio. How do you get all this stuff accomplished in a day? Track coach, you're training elite level athletes, high school athletes. You've got your own business. You're, you're at a school. How do you do all this, coach? Man, uh, I don't know. My, my wife might ask the same question. It's certainly challenging at times. Um, I think uh, I've, been, I've been very fortunate with my job situation and the amount of load that I've taken on uh, that way to be able to, to do some of that stuff during the day. I don't teach classes at the school that I'm at, so uh, I'm a full-time coach, uh, which affords me a little bit of time to be able to manage some of the, the other things. I still try to do a good job for, for them. I'm very fortunate to be in a position that I'm in. I'm not you know, teaching six, seven classes a day and then rushing out to the field as per most high school coaches. So I think that's probably the, the biggest benefit, being at a private school and, and doing all that. And You've coached some world-class elite-level athletes. I'm really curious, when you first start to work with them or they first come to you and say, hey, what do you think? What are you looking for just to start with? Honestly, I mean, I've been absolutely fortunate in my, my career to have had the kids that have come through my program and athletes that have wanted to train alongside me. I mean, honestly, and I don't, I don't mean to, to downplay a, a, an elite-level athlete, but you really have to look and assess every athlete the same. Uh, whether you're working with a you know freshman in high school that's just green and 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 trying to figure it out, or you're working with an NFL football player or a world class track athlete, I mean you have to assess what their needs are. Believe it or not, you know NFL superstars still have needs and they're they're not perfect. Now the 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 funnel's a little tighter, and you're probably looking for some you know different things to enhance their performance. It's still an assessment of what their needs are. You know uh, taking a look at what sport are they involved in? What are the energy systems that they use? And how can we maximize those for them through, you know, proper training methods? Of everybody, who is, who's the freak? Who's from another universe? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, I, again, I've had, I've had the fortune to have some great ones. Christian McCaffrey's by far, uh, I would say. And again, it's hard to compare. I've had males, I've had females. Uh, I think it's really hard to compare those athletes. And I, I've kind of had both, both sides of that. But Christian just is a, I mean, you know, he's got some great genetics, just, you know, his focus and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about him, but, but he is, he is a freak. I mean, he's, he's good at everything he does. You know, the kid plays piano, um, you know, he can swat the house, he can, he's fast, he's good looking. I mean, you know, he's kind of got 
kind of the Midas touch at everything he does. He's just an extremely talented kid, coordination, uh, muscle coordination, you know, things like that are just, just the elitist level I've ever worked with. Female side, you know, I've had Mary Beth Sant as a, as a professional sprinter um, at five foot, 103 pounds, one of the fastest girls in the nation. You know, you, I would say for her, you know, her nervous system is, is as high a level of a nervous system as I've ever been, you know, fortunate enough to work with. Anna Hall, who's now at Georgia, uh, was a, a multi-athlete for me and hurdler and, you know, holds national records in the heptathlon, pentathlon, which you could argue is the best athlete in the world. Really hard to like take maybe maybe as a top three, you know, athletes that I've had fortune to work with in recent years um, and compare them. Uh, but I'd still have to probably put CMC up there as, as a, you know, the, the word freak for sure comes to mind. Oh, I, I don't, I don't doubt it. I've watched him run the ball a few times and I'm like, what, how did that happen? You know, going through um, your bio coach, I want you to just give everybody here because some of us in the Midwest might not know about the high school you're talking about. They might not know anything about coolest sports performance. Give us your synopsis and maybe your why behind starting coolest sport performance? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been a high school coach for 24 years now. And along the way, I've had different little mini business ventures, try to make a little extra money and, and you know, dive into the world of performance and private training. I think Cool Sports Performance was truly born out of kind of the necessity for a business model around training Christian and some other NFL guys just to get outside and out of the umbrella of, of the high school and, and having, you know, liability protection, you know, all the, all the things that come along with the business. You know, from that point forward, it just kind of stumbled upon a, a need for pro athletes to have a little different look at their training. And I, I certainly, you know, kind of come from a, I'm sure as Tony shared, maybe a different mindset, a different approach or philosophy to training athletes and have applied that uh, to athletes like Christian, kind of in a track and field model, but but even at that level, a different level of track and field to a football player and just had really great success with that. And so uh, a vision uh, kind of spurred the thing on and now all of a sudden we're trying to grow the thing into being more of a full-time uh, deal and, and bringing in some elite level guys and gals that way. Really kind of a, uh, I guess, organic, you know, need on the front end and now potentially, you know, a future business with, you know, more more clients. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Because Jar and I were just having a discussion the other day and I asked him a question. I said, can you be an expert at anything if you're not a consumer of that? And I gave him an example, like, can you be an expert in first-class customer service if, you're, if you don't go through first-class customer service, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting what you said, because I see this model that you have, and you're talking about developing new ways for high-level athletes. And I got to imagine that that just comes right on down to the, to the guys and gals you're coaching in high school, and you're looking at this from that different mentality, right? And all of a sudden, you've got exponential increase in abilities because you've stepped outside the box and said, just because I did it that way doesn't mean I have to do it that way. Just because we can doesn't mean we should, right? Yeah. So I, I read something about elite level athletes and I read an article that actually came out in a recent publication about one of the things you were doing with Christian and it was trying to do basically like post-activation mm -hmm. workout with him to get him to go. Can you Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, our, our, our whole lifting programming really around uh, all athletes, it, it revolves around a concept called mass specific force, where basically we're trying to ensure that the athletes, we try to get them to the body weight that they want to compete or perform at and then maximize the force output according to their body weight. Because, you know, we can, we can create a ton of force. Uh, you know, there, there's big old 400 pounders that, that produce a lot of force, but that doesn't necessarily mean they move very fast. Right. So what we're trying to do is, is keep the weight down and, and, and produce a lot of force. And so, you know, therein lies the example of why we lift a little bit differently versus kind of the old, uh, what I would say was a trend that moved towards, you know, hypertrophy, kind of a bodybuilding, um, you know, muscular kind of a deal, which is there's some necessity to that for football players. There's no doubt because there's contact and, you know, force applied by other bodies and things like that. 
But you know, we took a Christian in particular, this is how we're going to do that. And so really the, the post-activation, the contrast training you're referring to is really kind of maximizing a, a bilateral exercise like the deadlift, uh, where we're going to get maximum, maximum muscle contraction uh, in, a, in a short rep set. We, you know, we, we try to stay and live in the three to four rep range all the time, kind of the power, power range of, of reps. And then um, we post-activate with that in a contrast of a uh, plyometric, whether it's a depth jump, a box jump, a vertical jump, uh, some of it's loaded, some of it's assisted. It just depends on kind of where we're at in our phasing. But we, we get that because we're trying to activate those, those muscles, again, in a different way uh, so that we get more, more force output on the back end of that. We follow all that with a big, long rest, four to five minutes for complete ATP replenishment which again is, is so countercultural to the weight room culture. Of, hey, keep moving, get going. We got to keep moving. And our, our biggest deal is we try not to train anything at depletion. And so that includes the weight room. That includes our running workouts, um, things like that. You know, you know, football in particular, you get, you get some rest time uh, during between plays. So the rest, the rest ratios, you know, about five to six seconds of work to 30 to 40 seconds of recovery that that's dang near close enough for almost full recovery in your, in your, in your uh, performance. So your training should match that at some level, whether it's dumb luck or science, uh, we kind of stumbled upon a model that worked really well for a kid that you know, was in the game 96% of the time and had 403 touches last year, stayed healthy, formed at a high level in third and fourth quarters. And, and really his entire modeling around that concept of mass specific force fast twitch development is, is really where that was born out of that was probably a longer answer than what you're looking <laughs> no because no i'm a geek so i really love that <laughs> answer and i'm i my desk is a whiteboard so i'm i'm literally taking notes as we go i just formulated like 18 more questions that weren't on your script so i'm sorry but no. uh we'll we'll have to get them answered at some point <laughs> The thing with my training system is it all ties in together, you know, so the, the strength training and the speed work and the agility training and the, ev everything ties in together that the philosophy pretty much stays the same throughout. It, it does make it easy to explain and even understand a little bit better because everything applies across the board, but it's hard to, it's hard to not talk about all of it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you oh yeah, absolutely. Exercise. What would you say is the number one thing high school kids should be focusing on in their training? Speed development. Um, Speed. Yeah, I mean, I've been really lucky to have coached football and track and field. And when I say coach football, I mean from youth with my son, seven-year-olds, all the way up through, you know, a, a pretty high level of high school football. And in some of the players that I've seen in that uh, weren't, weren't big, you know, they were, but they were fast. I think the common denominator for a high school athlete to be successful is speed. It's also something that's hard to develop. It's not something yeah. that, that is as easy as if you want a kid to put some muscle mass on, that's a, that's a pretty steady process, but I think it's a pretty easy process. You know, you get adaptation to load, and so you put load on, they're going to get bigger, stronger. Speed is a, you know, there's a lot of mechanics involved. There's a lot of technique. It takes high output to develop that. And so I, I really do feel like if I had to cut away everything and they said you get one skill to, to develop and work on, it would be speed. So where do you think the, I guess, the magical mystery dividing line is between the weightlifting portion of it versus the speed development portion of it, if you're trying to do both? Well, I think both are completely necessary. I and mean, I only say that speed development would be the one component, but I think that the, the strength training and the certain type of strength training feeds into the force output that creates frequency and stride length and all the, the components of speed. So I don't think they can be separated. Uh, there are some people out there that think you can just only run to get faster. And there's some people that if you just get in the weight room, I mean, I remember Boyd Epley 35, 40 years ago said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll lift kids and they'll get faster in the 40 without any running at all. So I think probably the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Certainly. I mean, I, I have anecdotal evidence with my athletes, female athletes, especially of the weight room having direct impact on speed enhancement. So I think it's a I think I, you asked where the line is. I think it's right down the middle. I think you have to be very careful and understanding of how you lift and what exercises and periodization. You can't just grab a generalized strength training program and go linear periodization and rely on that being the, the component to faster speed. 
but I think a combination of the two, running fast and, and lifting, you know, lifting for the right purpose is really the, the magic formula. You know, I've heard before with female athletes, I've heard some people say like they will not drop a bar. Like they would rather ride that thing to the ground than drop it. And I'm curious because you work with some pretty high level female athletes. What do you think is the difference there between them and the men as far as you could say the weightlifting standpoint or even teaching them how to move from a speed standpoint? Yeah, for years. And maybe it's because you're one person in front of a hundred kids and you don't know any better or whatever. I've never treated the girls any different than I have the boys. And I've had pretty high level girl programs throughout the years. And I think part of it's because I'm not afraid to get them in the weight room and lift them. There obviously is a concern about weight gain with the girls and hypertrophy and they don't want to get too big, uh, which is where I stumbled upon the mass specific force concept, creating a very strong athlete without putting any body weight on that then (laughs) transferred over years into being able to do it with an NFL football player. Um, And we got similar results. But, but the girls, I, I just think a lot of it is, I mean, it's, it's nature nurture. If you create an environment where lifting weights is acceptable, it's understood, if you've educated them scientifically, they're not going to look like a boy after they get done working out, uh, that kind of a thing. And it just becomes part of your culture. I mean, you ought to see our girls lift weights. I mean, we got, we got girls that deadlift and we drop from the top. So we try to kind of eliminate the eccentric movement. To, to avoid that, you know, time under tension and, and hypertrophy uh, in the weight room. And so we got girls, I mean, my 103-pound sprinter uh, deadlifts close to 300 pounds. And she dropped that sucker from the top. And, you, you know, we got, I don't know, 15, 20 bars going in the weight room at any one given time with a bunch of girls. And it's impressive. I mean, and I, and I really do think, you know, there's a confidence piece to it. Clearly, there's a science piece to the force application and, and the development of the rear chain, which is where speed is born. And yeah. so uh, we just don't treat it really any different. And I think that a lot of it just revolves around the culture. Again, nature, nurture, you know, if you tell them it's going to be a bad thing, then likely it will be. We've just made it acceptable and, and rolled from there. Our strength and conditioning guy is amazing. You should meet him. He's a, he's a, he's, he's awesome. I mean, typical high energy guy but the thing that i think separates them is just the stuff that you're talking about that you're looking at everybody and everybody's a little different and you have to know where to draw the line where and i love a saying that he tells kids in the weight room it's all that anterior stuff that'll look good this summer at the beach when you got your shirt off but if you want to be fast we got to work on that backside a little bit because otherwise you're going to be slow on friday and you ain't going to want it you know i'm going to ask you a pretty loaded question sure i think i think i know the answer is conditioning the way we know it a thing of the past should we be even conditioning our athletes is there a point of running gassers up and down the field running line drills in basketball is there a point of that or should we start to look at it from a different point of view i think it needs to be looked at from a different point of view from the simple fact of we have a lot more knowledge than we had 30 years ago uh, in regards to science and energy systems. And for us to stay stuck in that model of, hey, I'm going to run gassers or pro sprints or, you know, what I did because my coach who played at Alabama under Bear Bryant, this is what we did. They did it because they didn't know any better, you know, and I think we should, we know better now and we should be smarter than that and apply some of those scientific principles. I also think it matters too with the age group you work with. I think, you know, the word condition, I hate the word condition, to be honest with you. I, I try not to use it. Um, I don't even like the, the term strength and conditioning coach. Um, I like to be a strength and speed guy. Conditioning, uh, obviously, there's, there's some sports specificity to some level of aerobic capacity. But I'm a firm believer that you can, you can take uh, anaerobic work and stack it and create a very high speed reserve, really enhance your aerobic capacity through that. I think Christian's a perfect example of a kid who he never runs over 30 meters and his total volume in a week, you'd fall out of your chair if I told you how much he runs, which isn't very much and is able to still go into a training camp and take all the reps and, you know, play 16 games at 96% of the snaps. People would wonder, well, man, he must just run all off season to be able to do that. And the answer is we don't do that at all. So, and similar, similarly in track, um, you know, we're a low volume program very much tilted towards speed development. And again, 
Uh, we ran the fourth fastest time in the country last year in the mile relay, basically on speed reserve. Kids at their 85, 90% were just that much faster than the other, the other kids they were racing. And it didn't get there by having a really strong back end of the race. We got there by having a really strong front end of the race. So a lot of it's how, you know, just how you want to approach it. There's different ways to skin a cat. Part of my philosophy in that comes from the kind of kid that we're working with these days. And we don't have the, the 50s and 60s type kid that grinders that'll walk through the fire for you all the time. And so I think it matches their mentality a little bit better. And then again, I always try to fall back to what does science tell me? Science tells me that this energy system is more prevalent in this movement or this, this activity. So that's where, that's where we're going to live in our training. In medicine, we always say that we practice evidence-based medicine. There's no reason why it shouldn't extend to everything else. It's evidence-based. Somebody tried it. It worked. It didn't work. What do we learn from it? What's the sample size? You know, and go from there. I coached a, a boy in uh, a high school, great football player, elite level running back, played division one SEC. And he told me, coach, I never felt after a college practice as wore out as I did after a high school practice. And then I hear from my buddies in the NFL that it's even different from NFL to college. And he's like, what's going on? Why is there so much discrepancy? I got to think some of it is just our level of knowledge and getting past some of our own kind of obstacles to look at things in a different light. But what do you see from guys like, Christian McCaffrey and, and the track that you're doing and coaches like coach Holler and some of these elite level colleges, what do you see them doing? That's so different base. Is it just like the Pareto principle? Is it 80, 20 rule? Is it like you talked about mass specific force? What is it? The world that we live in, uh, the strength and, and speed and, you know, conditioning world. Uh, it's a big ego world. I mean, and, and, I, and I think it, it should be, right? Because you got to get out in front of athletes and, and, you know, they need to have trust in you and whatnot. So there are big egos. And those, those big egos are hard to break systems, you know, systems that have been in place for years and influences that they've had in their lives. And, and there's no question that some of the stuff that people have done have worked really well. Uh, I think that, I think a little bit where I've tilted towards is 25 years in the industry, I'm, I'm still weekly. I mean, I've been on six webinars in the last three weeks trying to learn and grow and and find new ways. And I think that that's probably, uh, I don't know if it's totally out of the norm, but I don't know that there's a bunch of guys going, Hey, my system might not be the perfect system. So I'm going to try to find out ways to be better. And so they just get stuck in in some different ways. And frankly, it works a little bit. I mean, you know, I always say that it's a, it's kind of a, at times an industry where if you do anything, you're going to get better. Right. We, I think we kind of know that, you know, adaptation says if we throw anything at you, you're going to adapt and get a little bit better. How do we maximize that? And how do we take the environment that they're in like a professional athlete and, and have them do it at, a, at an extremely high level? I, I try to say that I op- try to operate in high performance, not just performance, but in high performance. And so to get to that takes a little bit different approach to how do I keep a kid unloaded? How do I keep a kid from operating, you know, not in deficit? And do I have enough trust in myself to give a kid one or two days off and that they're going to be okay? You know, I don't have to see them and hold their feet to the fire. Uh, I think a lot of it is just almost like a control issue. Um, I I don't mean to get overly philosophical, where a lot of guys get stuck. I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly fine taking a guy like Christian and training him about five or six hours a week and giving him four days off and not seeing him at all and trusting that he's going to rest well and, and then when I get him, I'm going to expect him to be at an extremely high level. You know, if, if, if we do an exercise, I'm going to want it timed and I'm going to want it, you know, documented and I want it a full go. If I'm running gassers, you never get a, you know, show me a kid that runs four gassers and any one of them is, is over 90% in, in uh, you know, effort or speed. They're not. They're conserving just to get through it. Is there a level of mental toughness that exists in football that, that some of that is warranted and needed at occasionally? Sure, there is. I mean, I, I played a little football and I understand the sport well enough to know, you know, there's some of that needed. But when you're looking at the vast majority of what you're programming in for your kids to perform at a high level, it, it is time to kind of evolve. You mentioned the ego thing, and I think you're on the right track with that. Whether Bill likes it or not, I try to add a little humor to the podcast occasionally. <laughs> you know, so I've got a good question for you here. 
you see some of this stuff on Twitter, like dudes are trying to squat on a balance ball. And it, what is the craziest thing you have seen? You're like, this, this is not a good idea right now. I call them the performance Olympics. <laughs> They're the, the, anything I can get my hands on to make it look like I'm doing something different. And yeah, it's, it's gotten a little absurd. I don't, I don't mean to judge anybody because I think everybody's out there trying to do a good job. Uh, I think I'm probably typesis of that because I've tried to go back to old school. I mean, my, my dad was a 35-year coach, strength conditioning, former bigger, faster, stronger, faster power, you know, NSCA, Boyd Epley kind of a guy. I grew up in that, you know, watching that. I kind of pondered over the last maybe 10 years of my career of, you know, why, why always something new? You know, why, why was it that, you know, some of the Eastern European countries and Russia back in the 70s and 80s when they were kicking everybody's butt all over the place, they were probably doing some pretty good stuff. And, you know, if you look at like even the Mass Pacific Force stuff, a lot of those concepts and principles come out of Eastern European, Russian type training models, which, you know, I think they were way ahead of their time. Why did we get away from that? And I think a lot of it had to do with, well, I got to put my stamp on it. So we're going to add this band and we're going to add this stick and we're going to add this cone and you know, the different things. And we're pretty simple in our approach. You know, I, I always say like my, my mantra is we're going to run fast, lift heavy and rest often. <laughs> that, that's kind of our, our mantra. I don't think you need all that banana stuff. So I don't know. I think the funniest thing I saw this, this uh, season of, of this COVID stuff was a, a device that somebody was wearing on their back, almost like a backpack that had like spring loaded uh, cords that kind of attached to your feet. What? So kind of on a thing kind of a deal. And it was like, but you could run with it, right? It wasn't like a Vertimax machine or anything. It was literally like a wearable, I'd call it a wearable Vertimax. And uh, it was getting poked fun of a little bit. But, uh, and you know what? There's probably some validity to it, right? I mean, there's probably some good stuff around it, but it just looks so goofy. And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, why don't you just run some fly tens and go deadlift? You'll accomplish the same picking thing. So... <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading some things back in the day, like you said, they were so far ahead of the curve yeah. because just the way they did things, it was more volume and intensity instead of some of the stuff that was getting in vogue. I kind of know what works for my body. And yeah. I think that just kind of comes from experience a little bit, sure. but with the elite level folks, what you kind of mentioned before, you're looking at nothing over five seconds, doing about three, four reps and whatnot. Mm -hmm. What do you think is kind of the, I would say the, the norm for those folks that kind of puts them above, say somebody like me who just wants to stay in good shape and just sure. kind of works out when they can. I think the answer to that is knowing, uh, Tony Holler actually says it great. He calls it knowing how to cook versus having a recipe. And, and I think that that's been a great analogy for me to run with of, I know what my system and my blocks are in my head of what we want to accomplish. There, there's going to be days. I mean, daily we manipulate and change and monitor what we see and, and do and it's individualized, but we always start from the same, the same ingredients, I guess, if that makes sense. And so you just have to know that like, I mean, the biggest difference between you and Anna Hall or some of the other athletes I, I work with would just be, what are your goals? You know, you're not, you're not looking to move fast anymore. You want to be healthy and, and live, a, live a fun life. Right. Those guys are trying to have high, high-level performance nationally, you know, world-type uh, performances. So the approach is completely different, you know, in, in that regards. I'm still trying to move fast. I, you know, if you catch any of the other episodes, I'm still trying to use my last year of eligibility, so I might be calling you. You know, I still think I can run just a little bit. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that later, Coach. We'll get to it. No, it's okay. You mentioned that you knew a little bit about the sport. JR, that's, that's a, a very humble response, okay? He was wide receiver at the University of Northern Colorado, right? And an All-American decathlete. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay, so you know a lot about it, a lot about it. Let's, <laughs> not, let's not downplay that at all. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. But first, I want to know, out of those events when you were doing the decathlete, which was the one that you loved and which was the one you hated? Easy. 110 high hurdles was my favorite event and I hated running the 1500. Because of the length or what? It was three and a half, three and three quarters laps around that stupid track. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. If you, if you got to go that far, you should drive. 
I've teased, I've teased some of my athletes of, you know, my, my system of fast twitch development and this kind of less is more approach, probably born out of my own athletic career where I didn't really like to run that far uh, that often. Yeah, I, I was more of kind of a speed, speed power guy for sure. And I like those jumping events and the short, fast sprints and, uh, you know, the 400 hurt a lot and the 1500 was miserable. So um, <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's your answer. Dive into for us, if you can, RPR, reflex <laughs> performance reset. I know some of our listeners know about it. I've, I've researched it myself being a physician. Give us a good overview of it and how that plays a part, not, a, not only to your high school athletes, but to the elite ones. Yeah, it's a new system to me. I just got certified in the fall. Uh, I thought it was a great course. Um, I'm always looking for tools to put in my toolbox. Um, I don't think it's, you know, necessarily a, a fix-all for, for physio, you know, work on athletes. But what I love about RPR, well, first of all, just a quick explanation of it is just if we think of the light bulb as our muscles and tendons um, in an electrical system, and then we think of light bulb be the muscles, the, the fixtures would be like your tendons. Nervous system is kind of the light switch. Okay, so, so we go in and we train the, the muscles and the tendons and we stretch and we lift and run and do all these things and we, we tune up that light bulb and the light fixture. That, those babies could be like Taj Mahal, but if the light switch isn't turned on, then, then we're kind of missing you know, the, the first part of human movement, which is the nervous system. So I kind of fell in love with it from, a, from that standpoint of understanding a little bit deeper how the human body works and compensation patterns for, you know, if you're experiencing hamstring pulls or quad pulls and things like that, there, there's reasons behind those. It's not necessarily always just your programming on the track or in the weight room or physiotherapy or whatever. It really is, can be just a nervous system problem and, and ensuring that muscle groups like psoas and, and things like that are actually turned on. So that's the first component of kind of what it is and why I like it. The second part that's, that was probably the deal breaker for me was it's not practitioner based. I don't have to work on 120 kids. Um, I, I can teach it to them and they can do it to themselves. There's no harm if they don't do it well. So you're not doing any injustice to them. And two, you, you, can, you can implement it. You know, like I said, we get our whole track team doing it out on the track before we, you know, kind of as part of our warm up. I haven't used it long enough to have evidence to, to know like guys like Tony and Chris and guys like that that are involved in it. Uh, to see the, the the reduction in soft tissue injuries, but I can tell you that I, I feel very comfortable with what I at least know that the kids have done prior to warming up. The expense of 60 to 90 seconds, it's a pretty low cost to involve in your program. What do you think is your biggest success story? Oh, man. Well, I hope, I hope somebody looks at my family someday and says that. Uh, no, my, you know, my kiddos. I mean, in the world of sport, I... Uh, Gosh, I don't know. You know, I've kind of been, I kind of look at my career. I started out, you know, as an athlete, as a decathlete. And I do look at my coaching career almost as a decathlon type of a career. I've had my hand in a lot of different things. I've been very fortunate to do football, track, performance, been an athletic director, you know, things like that. But, and I don't know if I've done any of them at a, you know, at, a, at an elite level, but I certainly have had a lot of fun and had a little success along the way. I, I think two things come to mind when you ask that question. We won the Boys and Girls State Championship at the 5A level the first year in the classification this year while I was at Valor. Um, and I did the same thing in 2009. Littleton High School won the Boys and Girls State title. I don't think that's been done too many times. And so I'm pretty proud of those accomplishments in track and field. But I do have to say that the work that we did at Littleton High School prior to coming to Valor, which was just a little public school, hadn't had a lot of athletic success and and building that to a couple of state titles in track and field and, and actually taking a kind of a doormat football program to a, a preseason number one ranking in 2008 was a labor of love and uh, took a lot of work. Uh, so I, I do look back to those of that's not going to be found in anybody's bio or, or on the internet anywhere for sure. Uh, but to take a program that was, you know, 0-32, I believe, uh, when I got there. And, and it certainly wasn't all me, but the staff that we kind of put together and worked hard for the next five or six years to get to that level and playoff runs and things like that was, I feel like, you know, I look back and go, that was a, a great accomplishment. I remember in, in 1998, Jeff City High School, where we're at here now, they came out and played a game in Colorado 
and we had future NFL players on that team, they would break away in that freaking altitude <laughs> after 20 yards, they get caught. And it was amazing the talent we had. Nobody knew they were going to be future NFL guys at that time. Sure. But I'm curious, how much does altitude training help somebody? I think it helps. I'll be honest with you. I don't think about it a lot. I, I'm, I was kind of born and raised in Colorado kid. I've lived here my whole life. I don't really know any difference. I mean, the only, the only thing I know different is when I go to California and I go on a run, I, I can run a lot longer, you know, and, and, <laughs> and like I told you before, I'm not a big distance guy, so I'm not testing the waters all that, that frequently there. Uh, I, I do think that there's a little bit of an advantage to, to training at, you know, a mile high and, and being able, especially when you're able to return to a, you know, a, like a sea level or a lower altitude environment, I think there's, you know, certainly some science behind red blood cell count and things like that that are, that are great. I don't know that we notice it that much because we, we've acclimated, we live here, we train here. I think for those that are visiting, you know, a visiting team comes into Mile High Stadium and plays the Broncos, you're going to notice that, you know, there's oxygen on the sidelines and they certainly, I think we certainly have an advantage that way. Uh, I think for training here, I think science would tell you it's probably pretty advantageous for what I talked about there earlier, but I don't I don't think we notice it. And again, I'm not a kind of guy that gasses my athletes either. So I don't, I don't see a lot of huffing and puffing uh, all that often. You know, I'm a pretty big professional bicyclist fan and I ride a lot. And there's a race out there called the Leadville 100. Yeah. That is at some major altitude. Yeah. Yeah. And that's even a lot higher than what we're at. You know, those are, uh, they, they run that triple bypass, which is a cycling event. And they go over three mountain passes that are all, uh, close to 10,000 feet for all three of them. So they're taking huge elevation gain. And, um, you know, we're, we're down here in the metro area and I'm a little higher where I live and then where Valor, where my high school is at about 6,000 feet. But yeah, you start getting up into eight, nine, 9,000, 10,000 feet, you're in oxygen debt for sure. And, and you get some altitude sickness and stuff. We're, we don't, we're not quite there down here, but, but you, you boys from Missouri would certainly feel it. I'm sure. Oh, we, we did. I couldn't yeah. breathe for about six hours when we come out there last year. I was like, there is no air. I had a lady in my office one time and she came to Missouri for the winter. And uh, I remember talking to her and I, she told me she basically lived on a mountain in Colorado, right? I don't remember exactly where. And she's in her 80s. And uh, she said every summer she goes back to Colorado because she loves the weather. And she goes, you know, sometimes people just come up the hill and they can't make it. So I go, so what do they do? And she goes, oh, they go back down. I go, how do you do it? She goes, oh, I do fine. And I'm like, oh, you're in your 80s. I probably couldn't even make it up half the hill. And you're, you're, just, you're just fine because you grew up there. Not to, not to draw everything back to performance training, but there's your adaptation, you know? I mean, Oh, absolutely. Athletes, people in general adapt to, to what you present as, you know, exterior force. So that, that's certainly one of them. I want to ask you about Christian McCaffrey. I want to get it out of the way. I want to ask you about it because I feel like you probably get asked about it a lot, but I want to ask you maybe something a little bit different. Sure. I've heard about his training, nothing over five seconds. You talked about some of it. You talked about his, you know, his work with uh, deadlift and then going into some, you know, plyo movements. I want to know something like this. He did a move. He did something and you just jaw dropped because you were like, oh my goodness, what just happened? Because we've all watched athletes before and just kind of look at another coach and we're like, I don't even know how he did that. So give me, give me one of those stories. I got, I got two of them right off the top of my head. I'll tell you one that I always tell, and then I'll tell you one that happened this week. When he was a junior in high school, we were doing a walkthrough. I think it was a Thursday before a Friday game, and we were running some plays on air down the field. And he was on the right, right side of the quarterback in shotgun and, and we sent him out on a little flare route and our quarterback threw it kind of behind him and and without even missing a stride he just stuck his left hand back grabbed the ball and kind of turned away from the line of scrimmage and one-handed that thing right into his rib cage without ever touching it with his right hand and just scooted up the sideline it was an incredible catch that he made look like you know Going to the grocery store, <laughs> it was seamless, and, and, and I kind of shook. My, I happened to be on the sideline that he was running towards, and I kind of looked at a couple people like, "Did anybody else see that?" Right. Um, and there were lots of things that he did like that in high school, but that, that's one that stuck out in my mind. Of that, that kid's different. 
just this week we're throwing a little bit after a session uh, uh, quarterback in and we were doing some routes and he took off on a, on a fade route and he bobbled the ball off his hands on the front end, which doesn't happen very often, but it kind of bounced up over his head as he was running. And he reached behind with his two hands and caught it behind his back um, <laughs> in full strike. I mean, and, and again, he does it like it's just no big deal. And, you know, the three or four of us that were standing next to each other just said, you know, this kid's unbelievable. So, yeah, he even, even working with him every day, uh, he consistently impresses me with some of the things he can do. That's, that's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. I could just see that happening right now. I'm oh, envisioning man. it. I probably don't even give it justice trying to explain it, but it was, it was a ball that was about 40, 45 yards downfield, and it just – it was out in front of him and he kind of, you know, lunged at it a little bit, tipped it up and then just kept running and put his hands back and caught that sucker on the, on the low back with his hands. It was incredible. Jeez. That's awesome. When we spoke on the phone about setting this up, probably the part of the discussion I enjoyed the most was uh, exchanging a small discussion about our faith. Yeah. You know, I still remember what you said. You said, it's awesome to talk to another believer and it still stuck with me. I told you that I, I knew I had to get you on the show somehow after you were referred over here, just because we share an in common favorite Bible verse, yeah. uh, Philippians four 13. I'm, I know I'm totally off script here and I don't really care. It's our podcast. So, um, <laughs> tell me why that's your favorite Bible verse. Well, I mean, I mean, I think, I think part of it's fitting for what I do, to be honest with you. I think when I fell in love with it and I, I saw the word just strength, even in the, the uh, verse, it, it drew me to it. And, and I do believe that, you know, uh, without his strength, we can't do anything. I feel like everything that I've been able to accomplish, he's had a hand in. I've done my very best to screw it up along the way um, as a fallen human. Me too, um, man. But, uh, you know, through him and, and with his strength, uh, I've, been, I've been more than blessed uh, with a lifetime of good things that have happened. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, to be honest with you. It's... Uh... It's something that happens and it happens all the time. And sometimes it smacks you in the face. Right. And, uh, that's, that's part of the beauty of it. It is. Yeah, no, I, uh, it's been great to be at a school, you know, a Christian uh, environment where I'm able to share my faith and, and I appreciate you even bringing it up. There's you know, a lot of, a lot of platforms where you feel like you need to be cautious. I'm, I'm usually not very cautious. I'm, I'm fine to, <laughs> to throw out, you know, my, my Lord and Savior's, uh, my number one deal. But that doesn't for sure mean, you know, I think as long as I got a moment to, to witness to others, that, that certainly doesn't put me any better than anybody else. I mean, I've made lots of mistakes and tried my best to fumble and, and you know, uh, throw interceptions as a believer. But uh, thankfully, we got a, a just, fair God that, you know, is forgiving and graceful. So thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm going to feel remiss if we don't give out some technical tip. And I know you've done some, some webinars and stuff and give me a couple technical tips for one, a football player. Let's, let's pick uh, a tight end who's working on his speed. He's that guy who is working on, you know, mass specific force, like you talked about and a hurdler, just two different things, but I get it. But give us some technical tips, some things like I got to see these two people do these two things. Sure, sure. That's that's a fairly easy deal. So one of the one of the big things we work on in any kind of speed development arena, primarily, you know, like you, I, I'm working currently with a tight end. So thanks for making it easy for me. There you um, go. Get the plays up at Green Bay, but they uh, but pushing through the feet, learning, teaching a, teaching athletes how to push through their feet. It's it's huge for um, them to be able to kind of realize better speed. Uh, there's a ton of wasted energy in a kid that doesn't, or an athlete, that doesn't have proper dorsiflexion when they strike the ground. When they start to kind of reach and pull, it would be what I would call it, versus kind of uh, push through the ground down and back. We spend an inordinate amount of time with all of our athletes, that tight end included, teaching them how to push through the ground properly and become more mechanically efficient. You said a tight end. Well, a big, strong tight end kid is probably going to be a pretty talented kid across the board but most, some of them don't move very well and they, and they have bad habits. And, you know, when we run on the playground as kids, we develop those bad habits of a poor posture of reaching bad backside mechanics, uh, things like that. So I guess the, the tech tip for the tight end would be teaching them how to properly strike the ground 
through sprint drills. I'm going to tell my kid to sit up straight because I know he's slouching right now. I just kind of <laughs> sat up straight in my chair when you were like your posture and stuff. I was like, oh, oh dang it, man. Coaches like sit up. <laughs> Posturing, yeah. Posturing and stiffness. Those are, those are two pretty critical elements of sprinting. And then for, your, for the hurdler, uh, it's funny. I'm doing a webinar tomorrow, uh, 11 o'clock on uh, our hurdle system. Uh, rhythm. Rhythm is the word, uh, I think, that outside of speed. You know, so if I'm working with a hurdler, we're going to obviously concentrate on feed the number one factor but the second one is rhythm and I think that you know people concentrate on a lot of different things flexibility you know different different components of hurdling and, and really rhythm the ones that, that that have good rhythm tend to be better hurdlers so we spend a lot of time rhythming uh, in drills and things like that so that'd be a maybe a tech tip there and there's a lot of drills and things that I could jump into I could give you my whole webinar right now but uh <laughs> I'm not what you wanted I don't think people would like it because I think they had to register to get on. If we do it now, I mean, I, I won't mind, to be honest with you. It, it won't bother me. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. What would you say uh, for baseball players would be one thing they specifically need to work on? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, and I'm not trying to take the easy way out, but but um, literally we train those guys about the same way we train every other athlete. So I say that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of different nuances to, you know, approach of a baseball player versus a football player versus a basketball player. But the number one thing is ground force production. All athletic movements start from the ground. How you apply force, how much force you can apply are, are huge components to, you know, uh, that if I'm working with, a, with a, a baseball player and they want to throw the ball farther, I, I, don't, I can't do a lot for him in the regards to arm speed and some of the baseball specific things that a, that a coach or some, a professional pitching coach or something would do for them. But I can certainly create more torsional for, uh, force. I can help them push through the ground harder where, you know, the hips, the leg drive, things like that are going to help them throw the ball farther, hit the ball better, uh, you know, maybe not better, but they'll have more force output. They got to put the eye on the ball. I can't not help them with that component. Uh, but you know, basketball players, same thing. Force, you know, force production into the ground. So we, a lot of the programming that I do, especially in the high school level, is very similar across the board. Um, unless there may be a non-weight bearing swimmer, you know, or, or something of that nature, uh, we're going to do a lot of the same movements to create ground force movement and and really stay in the fast twitch energy system. Again, not trying to take the easy way out, and there's a lot of different programming that goes in and tweaks here and there, but the, the bulk, like I talked about earlier, the, the blocking of how we train kids doesn't change a lot sport to sport. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and totally why I'm a foot doctor. Everything starts with the feet, right? It all starts from there, moves its way up. So, yeah, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't make that connection, but you're exactly right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, I got to get the plug in wherever I can, right? I got to somehow, some way. Um, I want to ask you one question before we finish it up, and I really appreciate your time. Sure. I, I love this whole idea, and I think it's 100% solid. I think it's evidence-based about rest and recovery and how vital that is. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed anything from really going all in on this type of training? How, how does that rest and recovery and that mindset of knowing this is the work we have to do, how do you find that helping guys like Christian McCaffrey, Mary Beth Sant, and even your high school athletes deal with adversity? How much more does it help them? They're healthier typically. They find more joy in their training. I think when that's the case, I think you're built to handle adversity better. If that's a, if that's a good you know, answer. Perfect. Um, I, I think I hope that people that leave a practice or a session that I'm leading are leaving with, with a smile on their face, they're happy, they feel good about what took place. They're built to be, uh, you know, let's call it like it is. Sports is a very psychological sport. I mean, there's a, or sports are psychological in nature. And they don't, you know, you don't necessarily have to dismiss the, the energy systems and the things that you need to train to make them perform well. But if they're, if they're having fun, if they're feeling good, um, you know, I, I say a lot, even with my NFL guys, my biggest job is to send them into OTAs or into training camp feeling like they're the best athlete on the, on the field. You know, are they by data and testing? I'm not a big data testing guy that way. If they feel like they are, they're going to be. And I know that to be the case from my years of coaching high school track. I, I've, I've fooled a lot of people over the years of, you know, and a lot of kids that they, they think they're a lot better than they actually are. <laughs> So I think, 
I think that's one of the critical components um, of, you know, handling adversity, handling competitive situations is to have a, a happy, happy athlete, joyful athlete that feels healthy and ready to go. And so, yeah, I, I, I do think that that's kind of a direct one for one there. So you mentioned being around high school kids. Those kids do weird things sometimes. You got a funny story for us. Something that happened in practice, oh, me, anything. I could probably fill you a podcast with funny things happening at a practice. Uh, coaching high school track and football and all the different fun things I've been involved in. And there's probably so many that I really can't put my finger on any one of them. But uh, the girls in particular are just – you know, they're goofy and they, they come up with, with different things that they do and say, and I don't know, I'd probably turn it back on myself that, you know, probably the funniest stuff that happens is them making fun of me or, you know, <laughs> counting how many times I say, you know, dorsiflexion in a practice or, you know, something like that. It's <laughs> probably my, my biggest memory of what happens at a practice is them making fun of something stupid I do. I coached powder puff for three years. And that was the most eye-opening experience I've ever had in my life because girls are, girls will hit people and it gets real personal real quick. So it, it was interesting. Powder puff's a bad word in my vocabulary. I've, I've lost three athletes over the last 20 years uh, from our program at some level from a powder puff injury. Oh no. Oh, no. ACLs oh. and a hip labral tear. And I, uh, not a big fan. I love the idea. I love the school spirit, but man, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a coach athlete guy first. So right. <laughs> so I, like I like that game very much. Coach, I want to tie it up here and I want to introduce our listeners to maybe the oldest sport in history. The human body was built for motion. And I know some people are going to argue that lacrosse was the first sport ever. I've talked to a bunch of lacrosse coaches and they've taught me that, but I'm going to say the first sport that any of us ever played was probably tag. Just a good old fashioned game of tag. And you've been it now for about an hour. It's your turn. You could pick anybody in the world. And here's what we're going to do. JR and I have made a list of secret tag guests. There's a hundred people on that list. It's kind of a bucket list for us of people we'd like to interview. If that person is on our list, we will donate money to your charity and their charity. Now, now listen, it ain't going to be a lot of money. Okay. So this is <laughs> we're, all this is on us right now, but it's going to be something. So your choice, you get to pick anybody in the world. Who are you going to tag? I'm going to tag, I'm going to tag, uh, my good buddy, Rod Sherman. Uh, he's at Arapahoe high school. He was our, our head football coach and athletic director at Valor for a bunch of years. And one of the most talented minds in, in football and, and even training um, at some level, I'd like to get him involved. He, he's a great guy, good human. Um, yeah, Rod Sherman. All right, coach Sherman, you've been tagged until next time. Coach Simmons, coach Duke, coach Kula. We've enjoyed it. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Tell your family. We said thank you for letting us take you away from them for a little bit. Tell Christian that he needs to tape some of that stuff so we could see these incredible moves he's making when he's training, okay? That sounds great. That sounds great. I appreciate you having me on.